seated and take a Bible and turn to James chapter 4 this morning. James chapter 4. Two weeks ago, I delivered a message entitled, How to Solve Problems in Church, Part 1, from James 4, 1 to 6. Today, I will begin the second part, which covers verses 7 and 8. But to recapture the whole context of our passage today, let's reread James 4, 1 to 10 together. And again, let me warn you, if this passage is new to you, if you have never studied it or read it recently, it's shocking. So with humble hearts and open minds, let us take in the word of God. James 4, beginning verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn. And weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. The believers that James was writing this to had formidable problems, which brought upon them a catastrophic consequence. But God, the Holy Spirit, by his grace and mercy, provided a solution to their problems, which is the same solution that is to be applied to our problems as a church and your problems as an individual. Problems in the church and in your life should be viewed as inevitable and expected. They will never cease to emerge from places you may or may not expect. As we saw through an exposition of James 4, 1 to 3, the cause of every problem under the sun is what? Sin. Look at verse 2 again. It's not the source, your pleasures, that wage war in your members. So our biblical anthropology informs us that we're all sinning creatures, constantly at war with our selfish desires 
as long as we live on this earth. Therefore, until glorification, there will always be murder, fights, and envy. There will always be hate, and theft, and adultery, and war, and every other sin imaginable. The moment you think you've seen it all, all you have to do is maintain the news, right? By watching the news, you're reminded of the depth of human depravity. It has no bounds. But since we, who possess the living, breathing word of God, we don't just learn how to identify the problem. We also know the consequence of the problem. Worldliness separates us from God. In other words, it breaks our relationship with the one true living God. Verse 4. James asks a rhetorical question. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the natural repercussion of worldliness, which is just another way of saying sinful living, brings about separation from God. That's what we learned last time. Today, we're going to cover the third step in the problem-solving process in church. The solution to the problem, to the consequence of the problem, is to implement a solution. Simply put, according to verses 7 through 10, the solution is to obey God. Solution to problems obey God. In order to deal with problems God's way, you identify the cause of the problem, which is sin against God. Then you accept the consequence of the problem, which is separation from God. Now today and next week, we'll learn how to implement the solution to the problem, which is obedience to God. Whenever you have fallen to sin, as a result created a barrier between you and your God, The solution is always to throw yourself down before his throne in humble obedience. In verses 7 to 10, James unleashes a rapid-fire burst of short, direct commands for the separated sinner to obey so that he may be reconciled to God and live abundantly. How many people want to have an abundant life? You know what that means? Biblically, it means to have a healthy spiritual relationship with the Lord Jesus. Do not buy the lie that abundant living means having health and wealth. If you don't believe the straightforward reading of Scripture, all you have to do is look at the world. Yesterday I saw a documentary about a football player named Steve McNair. Who knows who Steve McNair is? Those of you who don't, he was a quarterback for the Tennessee Titans. Steve McNair was, in the world's eyes, successful. He had reached the pinnacle of his sports career. He was a multi-million dollar person. He owned lots of things. 
He even was very active in his community, was loved and respected and esteemed. But behind the facade, his teammates said that he was the loneliest person they ever knew. So life abundant does not come from this world. It comes from Christ. And the way to have a close relationship with him is to obey him. Submit to him. There are ten commandments here. These ten commandments help the separated sinner become reconciled to God have life abundant. The first commandment is, is for uh, the separated sinner to submit. We're just going to follow the outline of text here. Verse 7, submit therefore to God. This is the overall call, meaning that this command serves as the foundation for the following nine commands. The Greek verb is hupatasso. Hupa means under. Tasso means to place or arrange. So it means to put in order under. Put in order under. It suggests the existence of a spiritual hierarchy or authority. And in this context, there exists a spiritual hierarchy and rank structure that appeals to the Lord Jesus. It appeals to God. Now this grammar must inform your theology. James is saying that we are to place ourselves under the lordship of God. And therefore to commit ourselves to obey him in all things. If you can affirm the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord, which is a condition for salvation, by the way. Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. And believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. If, then. There's a condition there. If you can say that with a clean conscience and mean it in your heart, here's what you mean. You mean, or here's what you should mean. You are saying that he is your master. And if there exists a master, that implies what? There exists a slave. If he is the master, who are we? We're his slave. It means that he is the foreman and we are the laborer. It means that he is the CEO and we are the assistant. It means that he is the sovereign king. We are his humble subjects. It means that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the commanding general we are as private. As the slave, laborer, assistant, subject, soldier, all rank themselves under a superior, so do you as a professing Christian. And we all understand submission, don't we? We submit every day. We may not like it, and at times we may hate it, but we are, at a minimum, forced to comply with rules and laws externally, aren't we? 
From the time we can crawl, we're taught to stand in line, wait your turn, stop at the red light, stay in between the lines, and so on. And even though as a culture we don't want to submit, rather we want to rebel, we still understand it and know it. All this is to say is that the concept of submission is nothing new to us. Yet it's not a popular topic of discussion or theology, is it? I mean, have you ever asked somebody or been asked by someone, how are you doing in the area of submission to God? Are you submitting to God today? Oh, I'm really submitting to God today. How about you? We don't, we don't talk like that. That's, that's void from our language, but is a constant theme in Scripture. Now, the place where the highest degree of external worldly submission is enforced is perhaps in the military. If you know my story, that's my background. I know many of you have a military background, too, or have been uh, related to someone in the military. I joined the Army when I was a teenager, and though I was fairly rebellious in my early teen years, I figured out on day zero of boot camp that any sort of rebellion would be not tolerated in body language or deed. You either submit or you quickly figure out that in combat, your lack of submission will get yourself killed or other people killed. So immediate, zealous submission is necessary. After I finished boot camp and infantry school, I got my assignment orders to Anchorage, Alaska, which just so happened to be in December. And I'll never forget the first time I landed at the Anchorage airport. It was December 26, 2003. It was late at night. It was bitterly cold. It was pitch black. There were mountains of snow everywhere I could see. For a barely 19-year-old small-town Midwesterner, I have to confess that I was a bit scared. Because it was cold, dark, I didn't know a soul. When I finally made it to uh, the Army base, which is about 45 minutes away from the Anchorage airport, I approached the main gate, and immediately I noticed a sign that said, Fort Richardson, United States Army, Alaska, home of the Arctic Warriors. And as soon as I saw Arctic, I thought to myself, are you kidding me? What did I get myself into? I don't want to be in the Arctic. They told me I was going to be able to hunt and fish. So I got to the gate, got to the barracks where all the junior soldiers would live. And I knew upon my arrival that I was going to be required to report to the sergeant in charge of the quarters. I walked in, saw him at his desk, stood at parade rest, which is like this with your hand behind your back. And I said, Sergeant, PFC Heitman, reporting is ordered. So then he issued my room key and my linen. He showed me to my room, and then he said, report in formation tomorrow morning in uniform. Zero six hundred hours. Now, at that point, do you think for a millisecond that I had any other thought in my mind than complete compliance to the sergeant's order? 
Absolutely not. And so listen, Christians. The way that I viewed myself when I was a private on active duty in the infantry is exactly the way you ought to view yourself before God. Every waking day, you ought to report to your commander and say, what are my orders? And your orders have been written down in stone for eternity. Here it is. Hupa tasso to God. Put yourself under his authority. Rank yourself under his authority. Obey his commands all the time. And if Christians would simply view themselves as soldiers on active duty and obey the orders of their commander, I can guarantee you all of our problems will go away. If a wife submitted to her husband as to the Lord, and if a husband honored his wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life, There would be no divorce. Submission to God. That's the first commandment that we need to obey to restore our relationship with God. Now, the remaining commands spell out some of the aspects and implications of this overall call to submit. The second command is to resist the devil. Look at verse 7 again. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, we were just told to submit, to put ourselves under someone's authority, but now we're being told to resist. But note very carefully whom we are to resist. The devil. The false accuser. Also called Satan, which means adversary. He is called the false accuser because he was originally he originally accused God in the garden. He is the number one enemy. He is the father of all lies. He is the tempter, the deceiver, the schemer, and a thief. And he is to be staunchly resisted. Resist comes from another compound Greek word meaning to stand against. So in English, it could be rendered as oppose. When you stand against somebody, you're opposing them. Which we see frequently in the New Testament with regard to human relationships. Romans 13.2 says, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So from Scripture, we know that it's a sin for everyone to oppose the government when not being forced to violate God's law. That's the only clause that we see in Scripture. If the government is not forcing us to violate God's law, we are to submit. We also know it's a sin for Christians to oppose each other. We're not supposed to stand up against each other. Ephesians 5.21 says that we are to submit to one another within the church context. And we know it's a sin for Christians who oppose their leaders who are not in sin. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says that clearly. We know it's a sin for wives to oppose their husbands and for children to oppose their parents. 
But, but, it's right and necessary to stand against the evil one. Oppose him with all your might and vigor. And do you want to hear some other good news? James says that if you oppose him, he will flee. He will run away. Now remember that. Remember that he's no match. If you're saved, he's no contender. He's strong and cunning, but the Bible says that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, I wish I could go into depth about the subject of demonology, because there's a lot of misconceptions about spiritual warfare out there. But time does not permit me to go in detail, but I want to say two things about the devil in order to hopefully clear up some common confusion about him. Number one, I want you to erase all images and representations of the devil constructed by artists and pop culture. Clear it from your mind. The Bible does not depict Satan as a grotesque, reddish, animalistic creature with horns on his head, a pointed tail, sharp fangs, and a pitchfork in hand. It's not biblical. Once again, I have to deliver to you a shocking message. Are you ready? The Bible reveals the polar opposite of the world's rendition. Does that shock you? (laughs) It doesn't really. Satan is not a silly-looking, cartoonish, mythological being. The Scripture reveals in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, if you want to read about it later, if that reveals that he was created as a cherub, which is the highest created angel. He was very beautiful and wise. And in fact, if you saw him right now, you would not run, you would want to worship it. He was gorgeous and beautiful and wise. And then he fell. His pride led to his fall. Because of his sin, God permanently removed him from his exalted position and demoted him to becoming the prince of the power of the air. The other thing that you need to know about Satan is this. Though he has limited power in the world, it's just unlimited. Study Job, and you'll see that God has Satan on a pretty tight leash. He has no power over you, Christian. In fact, you have power over him because the Spirit of Christ lives in you. 1 John 5.18 says, He who was born of God keeps him. And listen, the evil one does not touch him. And so the scripture doesn't tell us to go around our house verbally rebuking Satan to get off our back because he can't be on your back. The Bible says very clearly that he can't touch you. 
So the point James is making here is this. Oppose the evil world system governed by the prince of this world. Satan is not omnipresent, nor is he omniscient. He can only do what God permits him to do. And also remember this. What you may view as demonic temptation and satanic work is almost always, in reality, testing intended by God, James 1, or suffering brought about by your own sin. 1 Corinthians 11 says that you can drink judgment to yourself. So if you're attributing your problems to Satan, it's only true in the sense that you have not been submitting yourself to God and have not stood against the corrupting influence of the world. If you resist the devil, he will retreat. The third command for the separated sinner to obey so that he may be reconciled to God is to draw near to God. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, this language is pretty straightforward, but what does it really mean? What does it really mean to draw near to God? Well, the verb come near often refers to approaching the presence of God in worship. As is revealed in the Old Testament, Isaiah 29, verse 13, the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their, lips, their, their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. It has a similar meaning in the New Testament, Hebrews 7.19. But many argue that the meaning does that, that that meaning does not fit here with the context because James uses the same word in the next phrase. So James probably isn't urging his readers to worship God communally or corporately. Rather, he is urging them to repent of their sins listed in verses 1 to 6, and to seek God as an important aspect of the overall call to submit. That is to say that James is calling us to draw near to God in intimate fellowship with him. Now, the positive command here also has a promise attached to it. James says, he will draw near to you. That is to say that through repentance and submission, the sinning believer's relationship will be restored. That's a promise. And we see a vivid illustration of this truth in the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke 15. When the sinner is broken over his sin and seeks after God in humility and penitence, the Heavenly Father says to him, in effect, what the earthly father said to the Son in the parable spoken by Jesus. Remember what he said? In Luke 15, verse 22, he sees his Son coming after abandoning him He ends up in loose living, squandering away his inheritance. And the scripture says that he comes to his senses. 
And does he say, oh, my God, will, my, my dad will just, you know, he'll get over it. He has to take me back. He's my dad. He doesn't have that, he doesn't have that attitude, does he? Remember his attitude? He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's true repentance. But the part where this gets emotional for me is that the son goes back home. The scripture says the father sees his son coming and he runs. And he embraces him and he kisses him. And after he embraces his son, he says, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. If you're saved today, that's a picture of you and your God. Like the wandering son came to his senses in humble contrition, he drew near to his compassionate father. And his father drew near to him. And so it is with us. Like the penitent son who longed to have his relationship restored with his father, you should long for personal communion with your God. If you do not long for personal communion with your God, you have grown cold. The fourth and fifth commands in verse 8 unpack in more detail the general exhortation to come near to God. These two commands in verse 8, the second two commands of verse 8 call for radical repentance that embraces the total person. In verse 8, verse 8b, James says, cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands. James is using Jewish language here, which makes sense since his audience was the Jewish believers. They would have read this and understood him very clearly. But as Gentiles 2,000 years removed from James, we read this verse and we're a bit puzzled by it. So a little background is necessary to consider. Under the Old Covenant, it was mandatory for priests to be ceremonially purified by washing their hands before approaching the presence of God. In Ezekiel 30, excuse me, Exodus 30, verses 19 to 21, it says, Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and feet from it. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water. Why? Here's why. So that they will not die. And it shall be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. Now, at this juncture, it's imperative to note something here. 
the mere ritual involving the physical water had no magical or mystical power or effect on the priest. The act of washing the hands itself did nothing at all for them spiritually. In the same way, the ordinance of baptism contributes nothing at all to your justification or sanctification. That ritual did nothing for them spiritually. In other words, the priestly act was always intended to be merely symbolic. It was a symbolic reminder of the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. It didn't matter what went on externally. If what was going on internally wasn't clean. Very important to understand. Think of the chief priest in the Gospels. You can be certain that they zealously performed every ritual. They religiously obeyed every law. But then they wanted Jesus dead. They wanted to kill the very God they thought they were serving. So the external act itself isn't the issue. It's what's going on inside. When a Christian is baptized, it doesn't save him. It doesn't sanctify him. It does not bring him into the covenant. It is a symbolic picture of what has happened internally. Same thing with the priests in the Old Testament. Now, it speaks to something about how we are to approach God, doesn't it? Since death was the penalty for failing to be purified, we can observe that making an offering to God was not a casual experience. It was very serious. It was orderly and sober and disciplined. It was not chaotic, out of order, flippant, and frivolous. Today, there are no more priests, temples, tabernacles, or altars. So there's no need to partake of this ceremonial cleansing. But listen, there's a dire need for you and I to have spiritual cleansing before we come to offer our worship to God. James 4 says, written to Christians, cleanse your hands. So if we're not Levitical priests in the Old Covenant, how does that apply to us? Well, as a professing New Covenant believer, cleanse your hands simply means to repent from sinful behavior. We've heard the idiom, so-and-so has blood on their hands. When we hear that, we don't literally mean that red liquid substance on their physical hands, do we? No, we mean that they're guilty of causing someone's death. A man who drives drunk and gets an accident and kills someone in the process has blood on his hands. A woman who willfully walks into a quote-unquote women's health clinic and hires a hitman to murder her baby has blood on her hands. Now, in the like manner, 
James's readers were guilty of some serious sin, weren't they? And we know what that sin was in verses 1 to 4. It was murder, idolatry, quarreling, fighting, greed, pride, worldliness. So they were covered in that filth of heinous sin. And they needed to wash their hands of it. They need to repent. Turn from that sin. Now I want to call your attention to the blunt Seemingly harsh addresses here. This is why I warned you. This, this, this text is not something that we like to read for our devotions very often, is it? But we've got to deal with it. James says, you sinners and you double-minded. Now, the reason for such strong and tactless name-calling is the same reason why James said, you adulteresses, in verse 4. Two weeks ago, I noted how the address gains all the more strength from their contrast with James's typical address of brothers and beloved brothers. This is why I lean towards the idea that James 4, 1 to 10 is written to believers, not unbelievers. Because brothers can still be sinning and double-minded. But still need to repent from it. Clearly, he sees his readers as both Christian and and in need of wake-up call that will bring home to them the seriousness of their departure from godly attitudes and behavior. So in short, James uses these titles to grip them. He uses these titles to make them feel the gravitas of their sin. As a brief side note, as it was good and appropriate for James, the loving shepherd and spiritual leader, to use this type of straightforward language, it's also appropriate for Christian leaders today to use it when it's appropriate. It's also sometimes appropriate for Christians in general to call a spade a spade when gross immorality is going on. Perhaps there's been a time in your life when somebody confronted you about your sin in a straightforward way. And I know it's hard to receive correction because we're so given to pride. Typically, our immediate response is to defend ourselves and make ourselves feel less less guilty by comparing ourselves to others. Or we can minimize our sin by false theology. But you must understand, must understand, it's biblical to be confronted about your sin. Not only that, but get this. The one who is willing to offer you reproof, that person is your true friend. Not the one who lets you get away with everything and anything. Now, I don't mean, I don't mean to think I'm making this up. Listen to Proverbs 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. In other words, your real friends love you enough to keep you accountable. Your enemies don't really care one iota about your spiritual well-being. So the next time you're accused of sinning, instead of flaring up like a snake ready to defend itself, Think to yourself, 
Is there any truth in what my brother or sister is saying? When it came to James' audience, they were guilty as charged. And they needed to feel the weight of their sin. So James calls them what they were. It wasn't intended to be demeaning. It wasn't intended to be unloving. They were being spiritual adulteresses. They were sinning. They are being double-minded. They needed to cleanse their hands. And they also, fifthly, needed to purify their hearts. The last phrase in verse 8. Purify your hearts. The fifth command to be obeyed so that the sinning person can be restored to God. As was just explained, here we see another Jewish ceremonial term that is to be joined with cleansing the hands. So just as the Old Testament priest was obligated to wash his hands, symbolizing repentance from sinful behavior, purifying the hearts had to do with repenting inwardly. Which involves changing your thoughts, desires, and motives. It's one thing to stop killing people, but that's not enough. You have to repent from wanting to kill people. It's not enough to stop stealing. You have to have a desire to give back. It's not enough to repent from adultery. You have to reconcile with your wife and show her honor. See the correlation? Whenever biblical writers use the term heart, and in the context it's clear that it's not referring to the physical organ, it's referring to the inner core being of a person. Our heart is the control center of our body. Our heart is the substance and the essence of who we are. Therefore, the heart is synonymous with your mind and soul. When Jesus commanded... You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. He simply meant love God with every fiber of your whole person. Sometimes we put too much stock in the common dichotomy or trichotomy of a heart and mind and soul and spirit. We need to be very cautious about that. We hear too often that the heart and mind are divorced, but that's antithetical to biblical doctrine. Jesus said that whatever fills your heart will dominate your thinking, and whatever dominates your thinking comes out in what you say and you do. And so that's why it's ultimately crucial to purify your heart, to repent from wrong and sinful thinking and desires and motives. And when you purify your heart, which is an ongoing, incessant spiritual discipline, you become contrite. And we all know that God only invites those with repentant, contrite hearts to draw near to him. An example of that kind of contrite heart can be seen in Luke 18. 
Jesus said in this parable, but the tax collector or publican, some translations say, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven and was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That was somebody who had purified their heart before God. So I must ask, as I have asked myself while preparing this message, did you come today with clean hands? Did you come to this place today with a pure heart? Or after hearing this message, has the Spirit of God brought conviction upon you? Are there sins that you're enslaved to? Are there sins in your mind that you need to purify yourself from? If there are, you know what to do. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. If you do these things, I promise you that you are on your way to experiencing fewer problems in your life. And if you do these things from a pure heart, I can guarantee that you will have found the solution to your most serious problem. Separation from God due to sin. But those are only half the commands. There's more. But that would require another lengthy exposition. And I think I've given you enough you on today. Next week, we'll learn about the other five commands that encapsulate implementing the solution to the problem in your life and in the church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you've given us the truth to understand and apply. May we identify our problems as being caused by sin May we accept the consequence of our sin, which is separation from you. May we heed these exhortations to obey and be reconciled to you and be intimate with you in our, in our walk. Thank you for those who have come today. Please sanctify them in your truth, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.